Well, I've got some good news for the new year. Uh, December 21st was the winter solstice. And what that means is every day from now through June is gonna get more and more sunny, more and more daylight. So that's good news. Good for vitamin D, good for your physical health, good for your mental health, which you people who are snowbirds, you know this, right? You, you come here because where you are from, it's just dark all the time and dreary. So welcome to paradise, glad you're here. Darkness messes with people. Have you noticed? And it's, it's kind of like some sociologists think it's actually our reptilian brain from when we were prey at night being hunted. I don't know if that's true, but I do know this. Three out of every four children, three through 12, have a phobia, a fear of the dark. And this is really interesting. 11% of adults never get over it. So one in 10 right now. But even if you don't have a phobia, some of you might still be freaked out by the dark a little bit. So <laughs> they did this study where they ask adults like you questions. Here, here's the first one. How many of you check the back seat of your car when you park in a dark place at night? There is an answer. You, what percentage would you guess? It is 52%. There's a lot of you freaked out by the dark. Here's another one. How many of you, you watch a scary movie, you get kind of n nervous while, while the scary movie, so at some point, not always, but at some point, you turned on all the lights in your house after watching a scary movie? <laughs> what would you guess? It's 48%. <laughs> and this is hilarious to me. One in four of you, 25%, after watching a scary movie, actually checked under the bed. <laughs> now we're adults, we know that monsters aren't real. But if they were, that's where they're gonna be. Better safe than sorry. Okay, one last one. How many of you heard a bump in the night, you got a little weirded out, so you slept with a nightlight? 25% of you do that. We don't like the dark. And it's not that surprising that we don't. After all, even in like religious literature or philosophical literature, light and dark are themes of good and bad. Bad things happen in the dark. That's why the story of the Bible is such good news because it talks about the light and it talks about the light a lot. But it's not just Christianity in the Bible. Other philosophers and religious leaders do as well. Here, here's a case in point. There was a philosopher named Plato, heard of him? Fourth century BC, he told a, an allegory of the cave. And, and the allegory goes something like this. Imagine, okay, you can see it in your mind, there's, there's a prisoner in a cave. And these prisoners are kept in front of a wall so they can't see behind them. They can only see the back of the cave in front of them. And let's say that people behind the wall have these puppets or these figures that they hold in front of a fire, and all you can see as a prisoner is the shadow on the wall. And if you've been there since you were a child, you would think that the shadows were real. Like that's your reality. But let's imagine, says Plato, that one of the prisoners escapes, and he finds his way to the opening of the cave, and at first he's blinded by the light, but as his eyes adjust, he begins to see trees and mountains and flowers and animals and birds. And he's so excited, he says, I've got to go share with my fellow prisoners that this 
is what's real. So he goes back into the cave and tells the prisoners, you're just seeing shadows on the wall. You're not seeing reality. Of course, he's blinded by the darkness in the cave, and so he stumbles in as he says this, and they would say to him, we're not gonna trust a blind man to tell us what's real. And he'd persist, oh no, but I've I've been outside, I've seen the light. And they would say to him, according to Plato, if you don't quit that nonsense talk, we're gonna put an end to you. Now fast forward 400 years. Group of Christians following Jesus, they see the light. And at first Jesus is blinding and it's like, it doesn't make sense, but, but now that you've seen the light, you've got to tell people about it, but your friends, your family, your neighbors are saying, I think you're a little nuts. Why would we believe someone crazy like you? And maybe that's you sitting here right now. Like you came for Christmas and you're here with the relatives and they said, hey, before you go home, we're going to church, you want to come? And you just said, okay. And you're listening to the people sing and stuff and it's like, oh, that's weird. And the communion goes by and it's like the, the body and blood of Jesus that people eat and you go, well, that's weird. And it may not make sense to you. But I just wanna ask you, could it be that there's more to life than the shadows in your cave? Could it be that there's something out there that's more real than what you see right in front of you? And that's the story of the Bible. From front to back, it's, light is one of its dominant themes. It's, again, more common than you might think in the Bible. 244 times the Bible mentions light and darkness. And it's not just more than you might imagine, it's earlier than you might imagine. When is the first mention of light in the Bible? Anyone know? It's actually verse three. Verse three of the Bible. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Four times in the first four verses of the Bible, we read the word light. And it'll be repeated another 240 times in the Bible. It's more common than you think. It's earlier than you think. And it's probably more important than you think. Because for the Jews who wrote this, light was created by God. And it wasn't just light that he created, it was life that he created. Life and light go together. Now, we know that's true on our planet because all life on planet Earth derives from the energy of the sun. Without a sun, there is no life on the planet. So the Jews thought about God, what we think about our sun is light, it's life. And they gave credit to God for being their creator and sustainer of the light and life of their lives. And that's not just in the back of the Bible or in the front of the Bible. In the back of the Bible, you go to the very end, it says this, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Well, that's good news. Our God is a God of life and a God of light. But there is a truth, and I know that you feel this, whether you're a Christian, a pre-Christian, a post-Christian, there's also darkness in this world. And I don't know of anybody who doesn't bemoan the moral darkness of our world. It doesn't matter how old or young, how rich or poor, how Christian or not, if you live in this world, you realize there's violence, and there's abuse, and there's trafficking, 
and there's lust and greed and laziness, and we're a part of it. I think all of us can be honest enough to say, if we bemoan the darkness in our world, we are part of the problem. We live in darkness. It's nothing new. There was a prophet 700 years before Jesus. His name is Isaiah. And he writes this long book about all the moral depravity in his world, the darkness that we live in. But then he comes across this phrase in chapter nine of Isaiah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. He saw into the future a time when a light would come into our darkness and give us light. Matthew, the tax collector who started following Jesus, he picked up that passage and he put it in his book about Jesus and said, Jesus is the one that fulfills the promise to be the light in the world. And he wasn't the only one. In fact, another disciple of Jesus, a guy named John, he wrote very specifically about Jesus as the light in the very first chapter of his book, verse four, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, you know that's true, right? Because none of you have flipped on a light switch and had the darkness in a room swallow up the light. It just doesn't happen. We know that light always conquers. But if Jesus is the light, did he actually conquer? Well, here's the story of the whole Bible in a nutshell. If you're unfamiliar with it, this is what it is really all about. If you're new to our church or if you're watching online, maybe you've had a tough Christmas and you're, you're hoping for hope in the world. And so you've kind of eavesdropped in on us. Here is the message of the Bible and what God wants to say to you. There is darkness in this world and you're part of the problem. But God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to be the light. And just as God the Father created light and life, God the Son brings light and life into our world. But you're, you might be ahead of me. Like, didn't they overcome Jesus? Yeah, he died on a cross. He was crucified by his own countrymen because they didn't like the light. Plato's cave is true. When people are brought into the light, they don't always like it. And if you keep talking about the light, they may even do away with you. So they took Jesus and they pinned him into a tree. So it's not true that light overcomes darkness? No, that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus, three days later, rose from the grave. And it's that resurrection that gives us hope as Christians, that the sin that we brought into the world, the darkness that we added to the world has been overcome by the light of Christ. Simply put, Jesus died for your sins. So the darkness that is on you, you can be unfettered from because God will separate, he will forgive you of your sins and he will give you life beyond this life. And what you're seeing in the cave around you is a shadow. There is a reality to come. That's good news. And you think, well, Jesus said all that about himself. Well, that's, I, I get it that John said that about Jesus. But would Jesus say, yeah, that's true? Yeah, he did. John chapter 8, 
It, it takes place during a festival called Tabernacles. And Tabernacles was a cool festival. Think of it as a combination of Thanksgiving and a camping trip. <laughs> because they were celebrating the fall harvest. They're also celebrating the wilderness wandering. So they lived out of doors. They ate out of doors. They're in tents or lean-tos, tabernacles, they call them. And all the neighbors got to spend more time with each other than usual. And that's part of the problem we'll see in a minute. In the middle of that festival, they had a, I would call it a parade of lights, where they took the giant candelabra from the temple of God and they marched it through the city of Jerusalem. God is our light. God is our light. I can't prove it, but I'm kind of thinking it was during that festival of lights, that parade of lights, that Jesus said these words, verse 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. As the candelabra goes by, representing God as the light, God as the life, Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's me. Really? That's going to go over about as well as a hot dog at Hanukkah. That's crazy talk. And if you follow the narrative later on through the chapter, they get in an argument about Jesus claiming to be God-like. And they get so mad at him that they pick up these stones to stone him to death. But I'm not just interested in what happened after he claimed to be the light. I'm interested in what happened before that. What caused Jesus to say, I am the light of the world? Well, again, it is the, it is the Feast of Tabernacles. So neighbors are out with neighbors, and there were these two particular neighbors that spent a little more time with each other than they should doing a, a little something that they shouldn't. They were caught in the act of adultery. Now, that would be embarrassing. But then they take the woman and they drag her into the temple of God. That's sacred pavement. And they throw her down in front of Jesus. Then they say, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? Because the law of Moses says adultery is a capital offense. What should we do with it? And they have stones in their hands. They know that Jesus is known for compassion. Okay, if you're so compassionate, are you going to let your compassion overturn the righteousness of God? The law of God says she should die. What do you say, Jesus? Oh, he's a clever chap. And they think they've got him painted into a corner only to find that he's got them in a headlock. Here's the problem. If it's a capital offense, you need two or three eyewitnesses. Otherwise, you cannot execute someone. What are the chances? I mean, you tell me. What are the chances <laughs> that two or three eyewitnesses just happened to catch two people in the act of adultery? Seems to me like that would be more of a private affair than a public occurrence. Jesus knows this is a setup. They're not wanting to convict the woman. They're wanting to convict Jesus. We have another clue in the text. It's not what's there, it's what's not there. The dude. Like if they caught them in the act of adultery, how come she's the only one in the temple on the floor? Because my guess he was part of the sting operation, and they promised him immunity if he would get this woman 
seduce this woman and bring her to Jesus. And so Jesus, knowing the situation, says, hmm, this is really interesting. You, you, have, you have two or three eyewitnesses that saw this. And you're asking me what to do. Well, the, the Bible says to stone her. So I guess you should stone her. But the eyewitnesses have to be innocent. And all of a sudden, and you know the quote of Jesus, you probably heard it, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He's looking straight at the two who claim to be eyewitnesses. And if they hold their stones in their hands, his next question is going to be, why didn't you stop it if you both saw it? His next question after that might be, and where is the man who is supposed to be here with you? See, his interrogation is not going to unveil her sin more. It's going to unveil theirs. And they know they've been caught, so they drop the rock. Now, you might think that they dropped the rock because they were just so struck with Jesus' purity and their, no, they were caught, and they knew it. And two thuds turned to three, and three turned to 20. It was a popcorn all around where they dropped their rocks. And then Jesus says to the woman, where are those who accuse you? They'd all gone. And she said, no one's here to accuse me. And Jesus said to her, then neither do I. And legally, he couldn't. He wasn't an eyewitness. So he said to her, go and sin no more. Now this is where I think the church, many churches, and for far too long have gotten wrong what it means to be the light. We think being the light is exposing people's sins, standing for a moral agenda, proving that we're right and they're wrong. No, no, that's not what being the light means. Does Jesus care about morality? Absolutely. I mean, he told the woman to go and sin no more. But he's far more concerned with lifting the burden off of her than exposing the sin of her. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that the word light can be a noun. It is like the photons, and they go through the sky somehow. That's, that's light. It's a noun, right? It's also an adjective, and Jesus used it in this way, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is, isn't it interesting that light is both a noun and an adjective. It means that which illuminates, but also that which is, lightens your load. And as Christians, we've, for far too long, tried to shine a spotlight on the darkness when we should be lifting others' burdens. That's what it means to be the light. This is an extraordinary thought for me because you've got God is the light. God is light, God is life. He created both, he is both. And then Jesus comes along and this is a stunner. He says, what God is, that, that's me too. And so they tried to pick up stones and stone him. Isn't it interesting? They may have picked up the very same stones meant for the woman to stone him. Oh, they didn't get their way, of course. It would be another year and a half before they executed him. But when they did, they didn't put out the light. 
because three days later the light returns through the resurrection. It is stunning to me that Jesus legitimately can claim to be the light that God is. But this is the real shocker of it all. And I'm gonna have to read it for you, otherwise you'll think I'm making it up because this is like unbelievable. God is light, Jesus is the light, and Jesus said this about you, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Being the light doesn't mean exposing others' darkness. It means lightening others' burdens. When Jesus said, no one takes a lamp and puts it under a bowl, they put it on a stand, I actually have one of those lamps. It's one of my prized possessions. I keep it in my office. And I had a friend of mine that he would, <laughs> this is kind of crazy, he is the world's leading expert in northern Galilean pottery. Big deal, but a very thin frame. And he looked at my lamp and he said, oh, Mark, I can tell you exactly where that lamp comes from. And, and if you look at the front of the lamp, you can see it has been burned. Like this is a lamp that they used. And he told me where they used it. It came out of a workshop 14 miles from Nazareth. And if you look at the lip, you'll see a little line right across the lip. That means it's Herodian, as in Herod the Great. This lamp was giving light when Jesus was alive. And it was giving light within 14 miles of where he was. That is pretty cool. When people come to my office, I let them hold it. That always makes them nervous because this is a 2,000 year old oil lamp. It has not been lit for 2,000 years. It's a piece that like it should be in a museum, <laughs> but I have it. And what I'm about to do may be really crazy. I'm gonna light it. But the wick just dropped in the middle of it. <laughs> we have a, a prop malfunction. Bear with me, because you do wanna see this. Oh, here it comes. I've got oil all on my hands. This, this could be a catastrophe here. <laughs> but we're all very excited about it. It's natural olive oil, don't worry about it. Again, you might say, this, this, like, you're really going to light this lamp. It hasn't given light for 2,000 years. You might be nervous about me lighting a lamp that's 2,000 years old. But here's what I know about this lamp. It was made to give light. And here's what I know about you. You were made to give light. You weren't made to sit on a shelf. And I get it, Plato's cave is true. Those who actually light their light, they could be exposed. They could be criticized, they could be ridiculed, they could be persecuted. It's happened for the last 2,000 years of church history. But what we know 
that the world doesn't is that what they're seeing on the wall is just shadows. There is a reality that we cannot, dare not keep to ourselves. What does it look like for you to be the light? It, it doesn't look like you pointing out other people's flaws and other people's failures. It doesn't look like judgmentalism or criticism. What it looks like, well, let me show you a picture of what it looks like. This is a picture of the gifts that we collected at our Peoria campus. And we just lit a light in our city for children that otherwise would not have had a Christmas. We collected enough toys for 300 families to give three gifts each to their children. But we do it every year. Over in Wickenburg, there's one neighborhood group. It's led by my friend Ed. I'm so proud of him. In Wickenburg, they knew of 250 families that were food insecure. Their children were on the federal assistance program, and they would get food at school. But when you're not in school, you don't get those meals. And Ed said, not in our town. Their one neighborhood group packed enough boxes for 250 families to eat. That's what it looks like to lift someone's burden. And it's not just at Christmas or the holidays. Uh, in the middle of the summer, there were 2,000 of you adults, 2,000, who gave up a week's vacation to spend time with kids, middle schoolers, and high schoolers to have a memorable experience at camp. And you lifted their burden and made their life lighter. And it's not just during the summer. Around here, we have STARS programs, just athletic programs where kids, anyone can join one of our sports teams and play on a Christian-led team. Imagine how many coaches it takes to have 21,607 kids, we do count everything, involved in a sports team called STARS. And it's not just STARS. Every week we have baptisms around here. In fact, over the year, we have had 5,675 baptisms. I know. But I was, I, I was walking up to, to preach this afternoon and there was another one going on, so it's now 5,676, if we're counting. <laughs> Streetlight is a ministry that we started years ago. We started it because Phoenix is a city that has a high degree of human trafficking. Human trafficking has put more people into slavery bondage than in any time in history, and it's all over the world. We released that ministry to another church who could take it to another level. We're so proud of our partner church, Dream City, who is doing things with that that is beyond what we ever did. But it takes a village to be the light in this city. We're so glad for all of our other partner churches in that. I had lunch a month ago with a 21-year-old young man. 
He's about to graduate from Grand Canyon University, 4.0 GPA, by the way. And his question was, should I go to Harvard Law School to become a lawyer, or should I keep leading the 501c3 that I've established in the Valley? I said, what? He's 21 years old. He said, yeah, two years ago when I was 19, I was just struck by how many people in our city don't have uh, proper clothes or school supplies. So I went to a local high school and I said, would you allow me to create a pantry? They said, what do you mean a pantry? Well, like a, like a mini Target store. Could I, could, I, could I create a mini store, only no cash registers, everything's for free for people who need clothes or school supplies or backpacks. They created a pantry in one school and another school heard about it, said, well, we want one. He's up to five right now. And the mayor is asking to partner with this Callahan ministry uh, in order to care for people in our city. That's a kid in our church that is making someone's life lighter by being the light. Well, there's another man in our church. Uh, He's a, a good businessman. He's a financial planner. He's done really well. And he told the Lord, you have blessed my ministry, my work, my life, uh, so that a tithe is not enough for me. I need, I need to get beyond a tithe. So he asked God, would you reveal to me the poorest people in the world who have the least access to Jesus and what is their greatest physical need? And the Lord showed him Nepal. And Nepal has a need for water because their water is at the same level as their sewage. They need to dig wells deeper. But every well, it turns out, actually gives an opportunity for a pastor to explain the gospel in a country that persecutes Christian pastors. So my friend Matt, in the next two months, will finish. Again, he doesn't have, like he's, he's established the organization, and he gets funds from CCV. We support all these ministries I've mentioned. But he gets funds from other donors, but the lion's share is from his own pocket. We are getting ready to dig the 2,000th well in the next month or two. Another man in our church is named Roger Munchen. Uh, I don't even know how he does it. He spent time in prison. And after he got out of prison, he dedicated his life to serving those who were in prison. He is working with an astronomical number, 5,000 prisons in 178 countries. And recently, the governor of Arizona has asked him to help partner with their re-entry program to help find jobs and affordable housing for ex-convicts. He's right in our church. Aim Right is an organization. We didn't start it, and we don't run it. It's in the inner city of Phoenix, right in the middle of downtown. They work with after-school programs to provide Christian-based after-school programs for kids and the community. It's bringing light into the middle of our city. So even though we didn't found the organization Aim Right, the CEO of that organization is so delighted that we put a campus right in the middle of downtown that he now attends our church and is part of our church bringing light to our city. Now, 
you might look at your own life and say, but I'm just, I'm just a little lamp. I can't bring a lot of light into a dark world, a world that's as dark as ours. But do you remember what Jesus said? You're not just a lamp. You're a city on a hill. And all of us together can be a beacon of light to lighten the load of people in our city. Our goal as a church is to reach this entire valley for Jesus Christ, and we will do that one candle at a time. What if in 2024, your goal for New Year's resolution was not for you, I'm gonna lose weight, why, for me. I'm gonna quit smoking, why, for me. I'm gonna eat healthier, why, for me. What if your primary New Year's resolution was to be a light for someone who needs their life lightened? If we all did one small thing, it would be one huge light. I wanna read the last verse from this passage that Jesus said we're the light. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It is not you shining light on the darkness that will make a difference. It is you lightening the load of someone who is in the darkness. That will make a difference. As Jesus said, it will glorify your Father in heaven, or as I would like to say, it will make Jesus famous. Holy Father, would you send your Holy Spirit right now to every campus, for every person watching online, for those who have not yet accepted Christ, would you give them hope that there's more to their life than the shadows on the wall? And for those who have been baptized, who have given their life to Jesus, would you burn in them a flame that would result in a light for someone who is heavy and burdened? We pray for our city. We're not a city on a hill. We're a city in a valley. And the light we shine can make lighter the lives of those we love and those that you love. And we pray this In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. See you next year.